Now, Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Uh, Redeemer Presbyterian is a church in Manhattan planted by Tim Keller in 1989. It exploded in the 1990s and early 2000s to become a church kind of known around the world, a church where many, many religiously disinterested people were coming to faith in Jesus. And I shared with this congregation once a few months back about what Dr. Keller meant to me in my ministry, but since he died in May, lots of folks have shared stories about him and about Redeemer Presbyterian. And if you've read some of those, a common theme that you hear in those stories is people heard a buzz about what God was doing in Manhattan through this church. And so they go to visit to see it for themselves. And they almost universally ended up scratching their heads like, I don't get it. Like when you visited that place, as Sarah and I did one Sunday in 2010, it wasn't at all what you'd expect. The message was just straightforward, not emotionally compelling. The people, including Dr. Keller, were just basic, not especially charismatic. The way they did church was whatever the opposite of flashy is. No frills, just here it is. And you couldn't be, help but be struck by, where's the rock concert? Where's the polished production? This is upside down from the formula that's supposed to lead to church growth, the kind of church growth that this church has been experiencing. Where's the impressive personality at the center of it all? They've got it all backwards. That's the thing, isn't it? That <clears throat> Redeemer was backwards, upside down, only when looking at it from the standpoint of human wisdom. And our scripture text today challenges that human wisdom. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? We'll be starting at verse 18. This is page 1011 if you're using the Bible in the chair back. This is week two of our sermon series focused on healthy relationships from the letter we call 1 Corinthians. Last week in the opening verses of that letter, we read Paul pleading with the Christians in Corinth along these lines. Hey, no more division. Hey, agree to agree with each other. Hey, do away with the tribes, the camps forming within the church. You're thinking how the world thinks when you divide into factions like this. And today in our passage, Paul... Uh, is like, hey, um, speaking of how the world thinks, let me elaborate on just how human wisdom fails so that you'll stop relying on it. And I'd love for us to think of today almost like it's a, a part one of a two-part pairing, like this week's text, which explains the shortcomings of human wisdom, and next week's text, which prevents a positive alternative to human wisdom, they really fit together. And for that reason, we won't go too much into the alternative to human wisdom this week, because that's better addressed in next week's text. This week, we focus on how human wisdom fails. And specifically, this text unpacks three ways in which God's work seems upside down when we're starting from a vantage point of human wisdom. Namely, we didn't expect a message that would seem so foolish. We didn't expect people who would seem so insignificant. And we didn't expect communication that seemed so unimpressive. We'll take those each in turn as they show up. So first, we didn't expect a message that would seem so foolish. Not in our human wisdom, we didn't expect it. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. 
for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. One of our sons has an active imagination. Oh, actually, one of our sons has a close friend who has an active imagination. Our son does too. But this young man I'm thinking of, our son's friend, his name is not Jimmy, but we'll call him Jimmy. He definitively states these wild facts. So we hear them secondhand from our son. Hey, did you know there's still some dinosaurs living today? Do you know vets have a medicine that they can give dead pets to bring them back to life? Did you know... That air is heavier than a small car. But our son has concluded that Jimmy's always right. (laughs) So I asked our son recently, hey, do you think Jimmy ever makes stuff up? He said, nah, no. (laughs) So the other day at school pickup, it happened again. Daddy, did you know that mosquitoes can smell which blood type you are? (laughs) At this point, I'm like, okay, this is it. I got to put my foot down, son you got to stop believing everything Jimmy says. To which my son looks at me and says, ask Siri. And so, no problem. <clears throat> Let's see if I can get this on my, uh, on my phone. Hey, Siri, can mosquitoes smell which blood type you are? Here's an answer from Healthline.com. Since blood type antigens can be found in the saliva and tears of secretors, it may be possible that mosquitoes can sense these antigens as they approach a person. That was the moment I lost all credibility with my son. And now Jimmy can effectively tell my son anything he wants to tell him. If Jimmy ever finds out about the aliens that that dude has been storing in Mexico, I've got no hope. So, reflecting after the fact on how I blew it, It comes down to this, mosquitoes smelling human blood type just seemed too outlandish for me to even entertain. And to an even greater degree, the news that Paul had to share about Jesus, called here the word of the cross, was several bridges too far for many of the folks who heard him share it. Like, check it out. For decades, Jewish folks have been asking for signs, verse 22. Like, Jesus, if you're the Savior, great, overthrow Rome. Or at least do something cool and supernatural so we can know you're a winner. But instead, Jesus responds by going to the cross. The most humiliating type of defeat reserved for the ultimate losers of the world. Meanwhile, since before the times of Plato and Aristotle, the Greeks have been seeking wisdom. Jesus, if you're the Savior, compel us with an argument that convinces us rationally that you're the Son of God. But instead, Jesus responds with, hey, take up your cross and follow me as I take my cross to the place of my death. See, Jewish, non-Jewish, both are frustrated. Christ crucified, that's what you've got? 
the Jewish folks like Jesus, we were tracking with you until you started talking about losing. We want to follow a winner, somebody powerful. Meanwhile, Gentile folks like Jesus, here we thought you were going to present a serious argument. Instead, you're just talking nonsense, inviting us to follow you to your place of execution. Friends, Jew, Greek, the news about Jesus grates against every culture's values and priorities. On some level, the gospel is bound to be offensive everywhere. Why? Because though every culture is different, all of our cultures are operating on human wisdom. Yet, in every language and tribe and nation and people group, some hear this foolish message that chafes against everything they've been taught to treasure and nevertheless somehow become convinced deep down inside, this is what I was made for. This is what I've been waiting for. This is it. I've, I've found the secret to it all. And that's the difference between those who are perishing and those who are being saved, verse 18. This scripture and others remind us that we're all in one or the other of those camps. Right? Each of us is headed on a trajectory toward a destination. And the difference is not, hey, people who are mostly good are over here on the trajectory toward being saved. And people who are mostly bad are over here on the trajectory toward perishing. No, no, look at the difference. Those who are perishing are perishing because they can't hear the word of the cross as anything but foolishness. Meanwhile, those who are being saved hear the news about Jesus and are struck by its power. And that latter group, those who are being saved, those folks have been plucked out from both camps, Jews and Greeks. Verse 24. Some from every culture are called, and those called out from the world of human wisdom that they were born into end up discovering that the apparent weakness of the cross has ended up becoming the source of ultimate power. And they end up discovering that the apparent foolishness of the cross has become the source of ultimate wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. That's why, by the way, verse 21 said, that the world could never access God through the worldly type of wisdom. God's wisdom, it's, a, it's an upside-down sort of wisdom, right? Worldly cleverness has never been enough to access it. It's like trying to start your car with the key that's got the right ridges cut but doesn't have the microchip in it. Right? Sure, the key seems like it fits, but it can't power anything up because it's not the right kind of key, right? Worldly wisdom is fine as far as it goes, but when it comes to spiritual matters... All the wisdom of the smartest people at Northwestern or University of Chicago or Harvard, it's not the right kind of key. And that's the effect of this quotation in verse 19. Right? Paul's quoting Isaiah here, and the background is, in Isaiah's day, the Assyrians are invading. God's people in Israel have done everything they can by worldly wisdom to stave off the invasion, preserve their land. Right? So here's Isaiah 29, 13 and 14. They've been saying... Hey, if we hold these festivals, then God will rescue us. If we give speeches about God, then he'll come to our aid. If we perform these religious rituals, then God's got to save us. But Isaiah is telling them, hey, all of that is going to fall short. All that human effort that you think is so smart, all your clever words about God, that's nothing because your hearts remain far from him. You remain under his judgment. Right? So Paul is reflecting on that portion of Isaiah chapter 29, and he's going to quote from other portions around it, and he said, hey, Corinthians, this is talking about you, Corinth. 
beautiful speeches about God, lip service. Just like Israel, though, found themselves on the receiving end of God's judgment, you Corinthians are subject to God's judgment. Look at the judgment language here. If you don't bring your hearts in line with God's seemingly foolish revelation. All your wisdom, all your intelligence, Israel had that too in Isaiah's day. Look what good it did to them. They got taken into exile. In Isaiah's day and in Paul's day, God was looking for people who were willing to embrace his foolishness. Looking for some willing to be called fools in the eyes of the world. Because to be aligned with God and his apparent foolishness is preferable to being applauded for worldly wisdom. As we reflect on this passage, I wonder how eager you are to embrace God's foolishness. On those places where the good news grates against our culture here in 2023, as it has grated at some points against every culture in human history, are we willing to be called fools for standing with a seemingly foolish God? If, like me, you find yourself a little slower to embrace that foolishness than you'd like to admit, it's worth reflecting on Paul's rhetorical questions here in verse 20. He says, where's the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Wise people come and go. In other words, right? There were wise people in Isaiah's day on the Jewish side. Wise people in Paul's day on the Gentile side. And he gives examples of both Jewish and Gentile. But now God has exposed all their wisdom to be foolish. Because despite their articulate answers to this vast array of questions, they've completely missed the point of life and of human history. The most fundamental question of all, namely, who is God and what has he done? Despite God having given humanity the answer to that question in the Bible, it remains a question that the teacher of the law and the debater of this age can't answer. And so where, where, where are they? Catch this, there's only one other time in all of scripture that we find three where questions in a row like this. It's Isaiah 33 right here where 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 where's the accountant where's the tribute collector where's the one who spied out her defenses those are israel's enemies who have been oppressing them terrorizing them right and the answer given in isaiah 33 is you're not going to see those who terrorize you anymore messiah is going to overthrow them now paul's using the same where 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 to signal hey isaiah 33 is happening messiah is overthrowing the ones who were once so revered. When the dust clears, all their great understanding will prove impotent to answer the only questions that matter for all of eternity. Y'all, I'm not the first one to say this. Hopefully you've heard it before. We need salvation, not information. We need a savior, not an educator. That's why the gurus of our day, be it Christopher Hitchens or Ta-Nehisi Coates or Jordan Peterson, they can't ultimately take us there. Here's N.T. Wright. The Christian good news is all about God dying on a rubbish heap at the wrong end of the empire. It's all about God babbling nonsense to a room full of philosophers. It's all about the true God confronting the world of posturing power and prestige and overthrowing it in order to set up his own kingdom, a kingdom in which the weak and the foolish find themselves just as welcome as the strong and wise, if not more so. If the cross is the center of the Christian story, That means we're claiming that right side up is actually what the world considers to be upside down. 
So even the very wisest of this world can never embrace it for what it is so long as they keep looking at it upside down. But who is willing to embrace it? We certainly didn't expect people who would seem so insignificant to embrace it. Sometimes Christians talk like, if we just had some big names who would be willing to endorse Jesus, some somebodies who would come out and say they were Christians, that would give us credibility for our message. Meanwhile, here's Paul. Read along with me, starting in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing. To bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Did you catch that? So so not only is God not up there in heaven wringing his hands, trying to figure out how to recruit some more somebodies to join his team so that it will become fashionable to be Christian again, he's actively and intentionally calling the nobodies. You've maybe heard Winston Churchill's famous insult of one of his political opponents, right? Clement Attlee is a humble man who has much to be humble about. According to this passage, we Christians are to take that insult and say, yeah, that's us. It's right for us to be humble because we have a lot to be humble about. Like if we wanted to brag, what could we even brag about? Paul says, look around the room. Not many of us were impressive scholars, right? Not many of us were wielding significant political influence. Not many of us were born rubbing shoulders with the highborn at classy parties. Instead, the church at Corinth, and by the way, our church here, are primarily composed of folks who seemed foolish to the world, who seemed weak to the world, who seemed insignificant or even despised. Now, quick clarification. It doesn't say none of you were wise, as our PhDs in philosophy are looking at me kind of, It's not many, right? Not many were wise. And that's an important distinction because God does save some who are the best and brightest, cream of the crop in the world's eyes. Always has, right? We see in the New Testament examples of high-ranking officials and wealthy tradespeople occasionally getting saved, right? Just because it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle doesn't mean it can't happen. What does Jesus say about a camel going through the eye of a needle, right? It immediately says, nothing's impossible with God. Paul's point, though, is that that's not the norm. Usually, those from insignificant backgrounds are quicker to embrace the good news of Jesus. We've seen that bear out in history, and Christianity has been criticized for that, actually. The gospel has always disproportionately appealed to the poor, to women, to ethnic minorities, to refugees, members of marginalized groups, people without power. But that's a real challenge for the spread of the gospel where we are in Chicago's North Shore, isn't it? Comparatively few of the best and brightest of the last 2,000 years have taken up their cross to follow Jesus. Why? Because when we have wealth or status or power, we somebodies then are incentivized to keep viewing the world through the upside-down lens of worldly wisdom. And through that upside-down lens of worldly wisdom, life looks really good for the somebodies. 
to even entertain the possibility that the gospel is true is to open myself up to the idea that I might actually be a nobody who has spent my life viewing the world upside down. And by the way, it also requires opening myself up to the idea that my Christian office janitor and my kid's Christian bus driver and the Christian woman that cleans my house all have been living with more wisdom and power than I have because they know Jesus. Not many of the somebodies of this world are willing to even let themselves explore that. But that's the last is first, first is last kind of dynamic that God has created. And this is his doing, which is why Paul says, consider your calling, not consider the decision you made or even consider your past. It's consider your calling because God with intent said, I'm going to pluck out of the world a few of the ones thought insignificant to show the world what my upside down kingdom is all about. In other words, it's not like the message of Jesus is over here and the church of Jesus is over here as a separate thing. Do you see what this is happening in this section of the text? Paul is showing us that the church of Jesus takes on the shape of the message of Jesus. The message is all about Christ subjecting himself to weakness in order to show himself strong. Christ opening himself up to accusations of foolishness in order to show himself wise. So with his people. We're the people who surrender to achieve victory. Who suffer disgrace to gain eternal glory. Who die in order to live. And that right side up but seemingly upside down message has taken over the world. I love how Andrew Wilson summarizes what has transpired in the 2,000 years since these words were written in uh, 1 Corinthians. We take this for granted, but here's what's happened. 2,000 years later, it's very obvious that the weak things of the world have shamed the strong and that divine foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. Our moral imagination is that of the Pieta. That's that statue, right, of Mary holding Jesus. Not the arena where the gladiators fought. The cross, a stark symbol that was supposed to mean Roma victor, Rome's victorious, has come to mean Christus victor, Christ is victorious. Those in the ancient world regarded as heroes have become villains, and the crucified criminals become the most admired and worshipped figure in history. As the classicist T.R. Glover once mischievously put it, we now call our dogs Nero and our sons Paul. Who, at the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, who would have thought that such a wide-sweeping mass global inversion could ever take place? Only God could do that. And it's because this is a story that only God could pull off that there's no place for us to boast. It's like Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 9, right? The wise person shouldn't boast in his wisdom. The strong shouldn't boast in his strength. The wealthy shouldn't boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord. Showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth where I delight in these things. Paul picks that up and says, hey, this is true now more than ever. We have no basis for boasting. It's from him that we're in Christ Jesus. He chose us according to verse 28. He called us according to verse 26 to no credit of our own. In other words, on final analysis, even our choice to believe in him isn't something to brag about. Because even that was from him. It was his initiative. So what are we going to boast in? We're insignificant. We're fools who have only been made wise because we've been united to the one who is the personification of wisdom. See, we're in Christ Jesus, meaning we've been made one with him, and he became wisdom for us. In what way? Well, he's our righteousness. Had none of that on our own. We were unrighteous. But in God's wisdom, we got attached to the righteous one, making us righteous. 
He's our sanctification. Uh, we were unholy, but in God's wisdom, we got attached to the Holy One, making us holy. And he's our redemption. We were slaves, but in God's wisdom, we got attached to the one who paid the price for our freedom, thereby making us free. What belongs to Christ gets attributed to us. That's the wisdom of the cross. And that is what we're permitted to boast in. So I guess the question for us, North Sub, is what are we boasting in? Given what God called us out of, given what little we bring to the table, what are we insignificant folks boasting in? We've been seeing in this text how God's wisdom turns upside down the expectations we had in our human wisdom. The message seems foolish. Uh, the people seem insignificant. And finally, we didn't expect communication that would seem so unimpressive. So earlier that first section was about the content of the message. Now, uh, in this final section, Paul's talking about the method of communicating the message. And just as we saw in the second section with the people who belong to Christ, how we, the people, match the upside-down, bottom-up nature of the message, so now with the method of communicating the message, that's upside-down and bottom-up too. Let's read it. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Before I was ever thinking about becoming a pastor, I was always on the hunt for compelling preachers. I'd listen to sermons all the time, share with others the preachers and sermons I found most impressive. When friends and I would hear a new speaker, I engaged in a lot of, ah, he's okay, or wow, that preacher was amazing. But I shared with you before, when Sarah and I visited Redeemer and heard my first Tim Keller sermon, I expected, based on his books, that I would walk away saying, dang, this guy is amazing. Instead, I left that morning like, Dang, Jesus is amazing. And that disrupted my categories. Right? I'd been operating in the mindset, the more impressive the preacher, the better. Right? Apparently, when a preacher took the pulpit on a Sunday morning in Corinth, or Sunday evening in Corinth, it was a big-time master class in oration. Brilliant speech, dizzyingly tight reasoning, gripping people's emotions, speaking so persuasively, using the tools of advanced rhetoric that some of these preachers could have persuaded the church to do just about anything, whether it lined up with the gospel or not. Paul says, not me. Remember when I came to you guys? I didn't come with any of that. Yet, Paul says this using this amazingly skilled language. Like the lines in Greek here are paired with like matching number of syllables with like certain lines matching each other. Like it's like beautiful. The argumentation in this section of text is linguistically compelling. So it's not like Paul can't employ linguistic skill and so that's why he didn't do it, right? As one commentator pointed out, this is like the beauty pageant winner saying outer beauty isn't what matters. Paul can turn on the linguistic skill when he wants to, which in some ways makes his argument here more compelling, right? But at times, including when he first came to Corinth apparently, Paul sets all that aside just to strip it down to the bare bones and present the message of the gospel plainly, no frills. 
Imagine with me that first time that Paul came to Corinth to preach the good news of the cross of Jesus. Think about that. Imagine the scene, right? It's hard to recapture what that would have been like for Paul's hearers because in our day, crosses have become fashion statements and illicit thoughts of noble sacrifice. It wasn't like that when Paul showed up in Corinth to preach the cross. A century before Paul, the Roman statesman Cicero had said, nobody should have to hear talk about a cross in polite company. It would have made everybody uncomfortable. The room would be squirming. One pastor compared it to if you would stand up at a fashionable dinner party and start loudly going on about how earlier today you watched rats eating a dead dog in the street. Another pastor said, and I think this is accurate, that the message Paul had gotten up to share in Corinth years before this is equivalent to if we would get up today to talk about like a migrant worker who suffocated to death in a shipping container. The expected reaction would not be warm, fuzzy feelings about God's love or heads nodding in agreement with this thoughtful preacher. Can you imagine the scoffing Paul expected to encounter? Like, is this dude really wasting our time with this? Others probably just shook their heads and walked out. Like, that dude is completely unhinged. Yet Paul's job was to get up in front of crowds of cultured Roman citizens in a prominent Greek city and say, hey, everybody, you want to know the secret to life and love and happiness and identity and fulfillment? It can only be found on a hill outside a volatile city in the Middle East, the hill where they execute their criminals. When Paul thinks back on that day, the day he first shared that news with the people of Corinth, he writes to them, y'all, I was shaking. Do you remember how scared I was? That was terrifying, getting up in front of you all and telling you and all your learned friends that the hope of the world is in a backwoods Palestinian carpenter who came back from the dead decades ago. But I stuck to that message, free from frills, because only that message can grant access to the Spirit's power. Thank God, Paul effectively says, that I didn't try to fancy it up. That power would have been stripped away. You would have been just impressed with my persuasiveness. Then when somebody more persuasive came along, you would have moved on to their thing. You would have missed out on the only message powerful enough to do stuff in this world, because it's the only message that's animated by the power of God. Friends, that's why the cross is at the center of the Christian message, because it has power. It has power to show us who we really are, the power to show us what we really need. It has the power to transform us, to transform our families and communities. The message of the cross comes with power. We don't add to that power when we push the cross to the background and try to hide it before, behind more pleasant things in the foreground. When we do that, we actually strip the cross of its power. Our friends need transformation, not mere information. And for transformation, they need power. And for power, they need to behold the cross. Paul understood that what we win people with, we win them to. If he won people with rhetoric, then their allegiance would be to rhetoric. Right? A better rhetorician could pull them away. Better to aim to win people with the cross. Ooh, but not only to win people with the cross... But to preach that cross in a preaching style that's congruent with the message being preached. Think about it. To preach with pompous, self-important polish about a Savior's shameful death would be to cut the legs out from under that message while you're preaching it. Right? So Paul aims not just to do the Lord's work, but to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. To use Francis Schaeffer's title. 
right? If the centerpiece of our faith is a naked, exposed Savior hanging on a cross, suffering in our place, that message deserves to be preached with a congruent vulnerability, a trembling, a transparent level of weakness. So question, have we uh, gravitated toward cross-shaped ministry methods or toward impressive ones? Have we gravitated toward polished presentations or toward humble ones? Have we gravitated toward the brash online personalities who thunder judgmentally at other Christians or toward those teachers whose lives and methods seem to be shaped by the cross they preach? Big idea for today is this. Since human wisdom has been found lacking, let's not build our church on it. That's framed negatively because in next week's text, we get to see the positive side of the coin, what we do want to build our church on. But since human wisdom has been found lacking, let's not build our church on it. Friends, it's not enough to do the Lord's work. We want to be a church that does the Lord's work in the Lord's way. No gimmicks, no schemes, no self-reliance. The message of Christ crucified has to remain at the center, has to drive the engine, and everything else has got to be shaped by that message, not just in the content, but in the form and method as well. Because that's where the power is. Over the last 2,000 years, the world has been turned upside down by this gospel, despite how foolish it seemed then and seems now to many of our friends, despite how ragtag we messengers have been, despite the lack of refinement in our methods, stuff happens when this gospel is preached. Lives are transformed, families are transformed, nations have been transformed, there's power in this message, and we're trying to set the sails here at North Sub. Such that if the Spirit chooses to powerfully blow in our midst, we're ready to catch that wind. There's nothing I'd love more than to see the day when unchurched people are coming to faith left and right at North Sub. But when fellow believers come to visit and see what God's up to here, they're like, I don't get it. I love it here. God's clearly moving, but this isn't the impressive production that I imagined. That's the dream, right? Let's not do this dance of loosely trying to preserve the message of the cross while adopting methods that are divorced from that message. The messengers and the methods serve the message, which comes to us in the shape of a cross.